You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. Let's open our Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter uh, 1. Sorry, chapter 1, 1 Timothy. If you got your uh, Bible app with you, your Bible will also be showing the scriptures on the screen if you don't. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now, um, for the last few Sundays, we've been taking a look at something that we celebrate every year at Christmas, the incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And uh, we've learned in this series that that word incarnation is actually from a Latin word that means to in-flesh. So with uh, regards to Christianity, it means the in-fleshing of God. And it is arguably the greatest miracle in all of Scripture. God entered the human race. The Creator became the created. The infinite became finite. The Almighty became a man in Jesus Christ. And also each week in this series, we've been focusing on a particular passage, looking at the incarnation in that passage, and then uh, making some application personally. And we're going to do the same thing this morning from this passage here in 1 Timothy chapter 1. It says this beginning in verse 13. This is Paul. And actually in this passage, he's giving his testimony. And in the middle of the testimony, he has the incarnation as the foundation to his testimony. He says this, Even though I was once a a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display His immense patience as an example for those who would believe in Him and receive eternal life. Now take notice here in that one verse about the incarnation that Paul says that Christ Jesus entered the world. That He came into the world. That He did not come into being. He did not come into existence. But He came into the world. And that means He existed before he came into the world. And we've discovered that earlier in this, city, in this series, in fact, that he has always existed because as he is the Son of God, co-equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And as God, we learn that he created all things and that he now sustains all things. As God, he forgives sin. He gives eternal life. As God, he receives worship and he answers prayer. But at a certain point in time, Scripture tells us that the eternal Son of God added humanity to His always existing deity through a supernatural conception in the womb of a virgin named Mary. And in a fraction of a second, eternal God added our nature to His nature. Human nature to divine nature. And in doing so, became a fully human, human being. As an infant, he had to eat. He had to sleep. He had to be burped. He had to have his diapers changed. As a toddler, he learned to be aware of his surroundings. He learned 
to uh, walk and he learned to talk. As a young child, he enjoyed playing with other children. As an adult, presumably, he enjoyed working with wood and stone like his father did. Although God, he was fully human. And as a human being, he experienced both joy and sorrow. He experienced both friendship and loneliness. He experienced acceptance as well as rejection. Satisfaction as well as disappointment. He was even tempted and experienced the victory of overcoming temptation. And yet, though so completely human, Colossians 2.9 says that in Him all the fullness of deity dwelled in bodily form. So the incarnation, it's the miracle of all miracles, and it's the foundation upon which all of Christianity rests. No incarnation, no Christianity. No incarnation, no salvation. No incarnation, no eternal life. And why is that? Well, the answer is actually found in what the incarnation itself reveals. It reveals, first of all, the gravity of our problem as human beings. Secondly, the love of God in doing something about that problem. First of all, the incarnation reveals the gravity of our problem. Paul writes here, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, to understand the Christmas story, you, you really need to realize there are two parts to the story. You need both parts to make sense out of the whole. There is uh, two parts. First, the bad news, and then there is the good news, and we call that the gospel. Now, the second part of the story, the gospel, the good news, is about the incarnation, the life, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the good news, beginning with the incarnation, is so extraordinary that it begs us to ask a question, why would God do something so drastic as to come into the world, as to become a human being? And even more so, why would He do something so drastic as to, as to die on a cross? Why not just send an angel with some instruction? What was the reason for such radical action? Well, because Houston, we have a problem, right? And that problem is is the first part of the story. It's the bad news. And it's only when you understand the, the bad news that you can believe and benefit from the good news. So what's the bad news? Well, the incarnation is not only the most amazing miracle, it was also the most radical intervention of all time. I remember the first intervention that I was involved in. A friend of mine had become so controlled by alcohol and drugs that he was just blinded to what it was doing to him. He could see a little bit of it, but he couldn't see that it was just absolutely destroying his life. And, and he always thought, I can quit, I can stop. He was blinded, though, to the fact that he couldn't, that he was out of control, that he was powerless to free himself. He couldn't fix himself. He needed an intervention. He needed somebody from the outside of him to intervene. There was no other way. Now, in the same way, spiritually, we cannot fix ourselves. We need an intervention. We need someone from outside of ourselves, from actually outside of the human race to intervene. And that's exactly what we have in the incarnation. God had to intervene by becoming a man because there was simply no other way. And why? 
was there no other way? Well, there is no other way because according to the Bible, our biggest problem is not on the outside of us. It's on the inside of us. The alcoholic's biggest problem, for example, is not what's in the bottle, it's what's in his heart. Our biggest problem is not on the outside of us. Our biggest problem is not relational or societal or, or political or financial. Our biggest problem is spiritual. It's sin. Our problem is sin in us. Scripture teaches us that we all have this nature of sin within us. We're born with it thanks to Adam. And that's why all of our children come pre-programmed to disobey. It's natural. It's part of us. And this nature always causes us to put ourselves in the center of our world. It, it, it causes us to focus too much on what we want, what we feel, what we think we need. It causes us to want to have control over things that we can't control. To get angry when someone challenges that. To make excuses when we're obviously wrong and then when we're confronted about our wrong, get defensive. We could go on. I won't, though. The point is, is we need more than an upgrade. We need an intervention. We need the incarnation of the Son of God in the manger because we need the death of the Son of God for our sins on the cross. And that's why Jesus didn't come into the world simply to do a preaching tour or to hang out with us for a while. Jesus came into the world on a radical rescue mission. And He came to rescue us because we can't rescue ourselves. We can't relieve our own guilt. We can't produce our own peace. We can't manufacture our own hope. And even more, we can't see the gravity of our spiritual condition. We can't see how our sin separates us from God, how it keeps us living the life that we were designed by God to live. It's a terminal disease. And without an intervention, we will die. It will kill us. Now that's the first part of the Christmas story. And, and for most of us, we have a little trouble with that because it's, it's a bit too much to take. We like to think of ourselves as people who are in control, people who, generally speaking, have it together. But we're really not. We need an intervention. And that humble admission is really the key to understanding and believing the second part of the Christmas story, the good news. It's only when we see the gravity of our problem and admit our sin that we can be rescued, that we can be forgiven, that we can be changed. And that's why Jesus came into the world. And the fundamental reason that He did that is because He loved us. God so loved the world, He sent His Son, Scripture says. And that's the second thing that the Incarnation reveals to us. The Incarnation not only reveals the gravity of our problem, but also reveals the greatness of God's love in solving that problem. You know, normally, when we think of God's love, we always think of, we think of the cross. We think of Jesus' death for our sins. When you think, think God loves you, immediately you, you think of the cross. But in order for Christ to die for our sins, He must first come into the world. And that's what we have in the Incarnation. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. But to come into the world implies going from one place to another. Implies then that He left something behind to come into the world. What did He leave? The Bible teaches us that Jesus so loved us and valued us 
that He left the limitless glories of heaven and perfect fellowship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in order to come into the world. And Philippians 2 says, in that process, He emptied Himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says, He impoverished Himself to do that. It says in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor. This isn't talking about money here. This is talking about spiritual currency. Yet for your sakes He became poor so that you through His poverty might become rich. What does that mean? Well, it means that the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, in ways that we cannot fully comprehend, impoverished Himself so we could be made spiritually rich. The one who was so rich in prominence and magnificent that He was co-equal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. The one who was so rich in value and worth that He was the object of the praise of millions of angels for millions of years. The One who was so rich in power and glory that all things were created by Him and for Him. That One became poor by taking on a human nature in order to die for us so we could be made rich with the forgiveness of sins. We could be made rich with eternal life. We could be made rich, Ephesians 1 says, with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And what was the motivation? Paul tells us in our passage. Nothing other than pure love. A love that Paul said revealed itself firstly in mercy and then in grace. Look at what he says again in verse 13. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. In other words, Paul's saying here, I didn't get what I deserve. That's what mercy is. Not getting what you deserve. Now you have to know a little bit about Paul's background before his conversion. He was Saul of Tarsus. And he was a Pharisee. And as a Pharisee, he was deeply committed to his faith. And part of that commitment for Saul was to eliminate a new movement that had risen up among his people that basically said this Jesus of Nazareth was actually the long-promised Messiah and that His death on the cross is for our sins and that He had risen from from the dead and He was alive. And this movement, which later on would be known as Christianity, was enemy enemy number one uh, to Paul. And he spared no effort in in trying to stamp it out. And in doing so, he says here in this verse, he, he says that I blasphemed God when I was doing that. I persecuted His church and I became a violent man. And part of that violence was poured out upon the church Because it was Paul who went about arresting and imprisoning Christians and even standing over the execution of some Christians. He was a violent man, he says, of his own testimony. But something happened. Something happened. And it didn't start within him. It came from the outside. That's where all interventions come from. It came from outside of himself because while he was persecuting the church, He experienced a divine intervention that he describes in these verses here as an outpouring of God's grace. He says, 
the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, Acts 9 is the, the historical kind of his testimony. It tells us just exactly how that grace was poured out on Paul. It was while he was on the way from Jerusalem to Damascus to arrest and to imprison even more Christians. And he said, there, on that road, God's grace was poured out on me. Now, you know, the circumstances... Of, of, of every person's testimony is different. That differs from person to person. But you know something? We all get saved the exact same way through an outpouring of God's mercy and love and grace. His grace and mercy that flow from the fountainhead of His love for, for us. So Paul says here, you know what? I didn't get the judgment I deserved. I got mercy. But I got more. Not only did I did not get the judgment I deserve, I also got the blessing I didn't deserve. I got the grace. I not only got the mercy, but I also got the grace. And both of them because of God's deep, deep love for me. No wonder he says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Then he says this, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy. So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. You know, Paul's basically saying here, I was the, I was the poster child when it comes to God being patient with sinners. And like God was patient with Paul, He was patient with you. You know, I think every once in a while we need to remember back, if you've been a Christian very long, to just how patient God was with you in that time leading up to your salvation when you believed. How patient. How many times did He bear with us over and over and over again until we finally believed? It was a lot. It was way more than we know. As you gather with your family tonight, maybe tomorrow, or even next weekend, it may be the case that you'll have the opportunity to show that same patience to others concerning their unwillingness to consider the gospel. You might be tempted to think, why don't they get it? You've got to remember, you didn't get it. And the only reason you got to get it, you did get it, it's not because of some internal power in you. It's because some power from the outside of you intervened in your life. And you need to keep praying for them, for God to intervene in their life. Just keep faithfully living out the gospel before them. And when God gives you those open doors, to be faithful to explain the gospel. And the gospel, above all else, is an intervention. It's the intervention of all interventions. So the incarnation says, I desperately need a Savior, and I am deeply loved by God who sent His Son, the Savior, for me. And really, that's what the gospel teaches us. That's the gospel in a nutshell. I am more sinful and flawed in myself than I ever imagined, but I am more loved and accepted by God than I ever dreamed. 
Let me say that one more time. I am more sinful and flawed in myself than I ever imagined. But I am more loved and accepted by God than I ever dreamed. 1 John 3.16 says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. A few years earlier, the same Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote those most familiar words in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave. When did He give? He gave in the Incarnation. His one and only Son. That whoever believes in Him believes what? That He laid down His life for us. Shall not perish, but have everlasting life. There's one more thing the Incarnation reveals. The babies are so good, I'm going to go for it. I had a cutoff there just in case. <laughs> Parents, you're to be commended. The incarnation reveals that there's nothing impossible with God. And don't you see that in Paul's salvation? I mean, here's a guy. Who's, if you're going to pick somebody to be basically next to Jesus Christ, the main guy who authored two-thirds of the New Testament under the inspiration of the Spirit, you wouldn't pick this guy. This is the guy that's out arresting. This is the guy that's imprisoning. But that's what God specializes in. Interventions. Conversions. Transformations. Because nothing is impossible with God. And, and we see that in the center of the Christmas story. You know, when the angel Gabriel came to Mary, he told her, you're going to give birth to a son Okay, and here's where she goes tilt. Who shall be called the Son of God. What do you mean by that? She questions them. How will this be? And I'm wondering, is it how will this be? How do I get pregnant without the normal means of getting pregnant? Or how does God become a man? How shall this be? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, the angel said, and the power the Most High so overshadow you. And then Gabriel concludes with one of the greatest truths in all the Bible. For nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. Nothing's impossible with God. And the incarnation proves it. There was never anything more impossible than the incarnation. And when we face what seem to be impossible situations in our life, when we are losing our peace and our, our joy, when we're struggling to trust God with all of our hearts, we need to remember the words of the angel to Mary, nothing is impossible with God. There, there's, here's what that means. There is no sin that is impossible for God to forgive. Because what? Nothing is impossible. There's no habit that is impossible for God to break. There's no regret that is impossible for God to heal. There's no person that is impossible for God to save. Because why? Nothing is impossible with God. There's no trial that's impossible to overcome. There's no need that's impossible for God to supply. There's no relationship that it's impossible for God to restore. Why? Because nothing is impossible with God. The incarnation says that no matter how hopeless things may sometimes be from a human perspective, nothing is impossible with God because in the incarnation, 
God already did the most impossible thing. He became a man so he could go to a cross, so he could die for our sin. Now, I know for some of you, it's been a difficult year, and you'd rather just skip the whole cultural aspect of the Christmas season. You just wish we were in, it was January 2 right now, I get it. But don't skip over the true meaning of Christmas because if God broke through the universe, broke into the universe through the person of Jesus Christ, He can break through all the impossibilities of your life because the incarnation shouts above all, there is hope for you in Jesus. And that's why Paul says Christ Jesus came into the world. But you have to know more than that. It's not enough to acknowledge that He came into the world to forgive sin. He came into the world. You have to receive that. You have to believe that personally yourself. A few weeks ago, we were studying over in the Gospel of John, that famous verse, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. And we found out the Word is another title for Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then down in verse 14 of that chapter, it says, and the Word became flesh. Incarnation. And the Word dwelt among us. And then right before that, it says, to all who received this Word made flesh, to all who believed in His name, to all who believed in what He has done for them, He gave the right to become children of God. You have to know, it's more than an acknowledgement. You have to know He did that for you. It's a present, it's a gift. We're going to be giving gifts tomorrow, maybe tonight. But the greatest gift of all is God's gift of His Son to you. But like every other gift, you have to receive it, right? You have to receive it. But if you've never received that, if you've never believed on Christ, in a nutshell, Jesus the Son of God became man because God can't die on a cross. So He became a man in order to die on a cross. What did He do that for? Because we've all sinned, right? We talked about that nature within us. And therefore, we are guilty of our sin before holy God. And God is holy and He must judge our sin, but instead of judging us, His love provides a substitute who on that cross bears the penalty of our sin. And when we believe that, Scripture says we are forgiven. But we've got to believe it. We've got to receive it. John said, to all who received Him, to all those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God. If you've never done that, I invite you to do that this morning. We're going to just make a confession of faith together. And I want you to just kind of join in with us. If you want that, join in with me. Here's a profession of faith. The Bible says in, in, uh, in Romans chapter 10 that we believe in our heart, but that belief comes forth through our mouths, through a confession of faith. So let's say it together. I believe, I believe in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ. That, he that He died on the cross for my sin. That He rose again to make me right with God. I am a child of God. By faith in Jesus Christ. Not faith in myself. Not faith in my works. But faith in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Amen.
Hallelujah. Sweetheart, would you come up? We just want to uh, extend to you some Christmas blessings here and uh, want to pray for you together. So, Father, thank you for what Jesus has done for us in the incarnation. Thank you that he left heaven's glory to come here to die on a cross for our sin. And thank you for what that death and resurrection accomplished for us, the complete forgiveness of sin. I pray this Christmas season that that truth becomes something that we praise you over and over and over, that we wouldn't miss the real meaning of Christmas, that we wouldn't get caught up in all of the cultural festivities, that we would enjoy them, but that behind them all we would remember the beauty of God the Son taking on flesh to die on a cross for our sin. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, on behalf, of the, on behalf of the staff, all of us wish you a very Merry Christmas. Enjoy. God bless you.